Welcome to Neurodivergent Moments Podcast. I am Abigail Shimon, and you are Joe Wells. <laughs> I feel like I made that weird already. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I feel that's, that's got to be our brand. I think every, every introduction should get a little bit more awkward and weird as it goes along. <laughs> I like that. Most podcasts get smoother, but we just go further and further down the or is this uh is this natural yet <laughs> i feel like as neurodivergent people that's our true selves is being a bit awkward and weird so yeah. this is us becoming our our final form in the end will be truly awkward well i will say that once i got diagnosed i finally instead of uh trying to hide all my weird idiosyncratic uh habits and weirdness i'm now like leaning into it i'm now like oh no now there's a reason for it now i know why it's happening (laughs) yeah i feel more comfortable with just sort of general social awkwardness that happens to everyone you know i think um we're we're talking about diagnosis this week so we've gone very quickly into the theme yeah yeah we had angela barnes and talking about uh late later in life diagnosis I, I had a thing last night. I did a gig and I show up and I'm ch- chatting to an actor who I haven't met before. He tells me his name and uh, I forget his name immediately. Uh, and then I, sort of half an hour later, he's gone off somewhere. I'm talking to Nico the compare and I say to him, oh, Nico, what, what's the middle guy's name? I forgot his name. And um, he was going, what, the, the guy that was here? And we're talking. And then at that point, the guy shows up. So I'm sort of asking, what, what's what's his name? <laughs> and I think again, I know that that, that is not a, that's a thing that happens to everyone that, that they forget people's names. But I feel like the the autism diagnosis has given me the confidence to lean into that and point at a man and go, who's he? <laughs> I've just been talking to. Him. Going back to like diagnosis because you and I both got diagnosed a little later, and obviously Angela did too. Like, do you have any positives that have come out? Or negatives in your life about being diagnosed later like oh I wish I had or now that I know I do this like that sort of thing yeah I think we all go through that sort of um uh you know mourning what could have been if you'd been um you know if you've been diagnosed early you would have known yourself better and you wouldn't have felt so ashamed of all these things and 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 so on and I, and I yeah I, th- I think that's um th- that that's quite normal isn't it mm. um and uh but also i think it, it's i feel excited about the future i feel a lot more confident after the diagnosis i feel a lot less ashamed of of things um you know i i and i feel like a lot more productive in a way because i'm not stressing about you know and and i used to stress so much about awkward social situations you know where mm-hmm. Any awkward social interaction would really bother me in the past. You know, I'd feel like, oh, I'd like, just eat me up. And I'd think a lot about how I, what I should have done differently. Um, but now it doesn't eat me up as much. And I think that that frees up so much headspace if you're not beating yourself up about things. And that, you know, that's more time to be thinking about jokes and thinking about how the gig went and that sort of thing. And um, so, yeah, I think I think having the, the diagnosis has, has been very, um, it just it gets rid of all that, that shame. Yeah. For me, anyway, it did. Me too. Well, like for me, and we've talked about this, I think in this pot, in this episode specifically, but others like I am on ADHD medication. And when you first start taking it, of course, you're like, this will be the 
thing to solve all my problems. This is my magic pill, you know, and it certainly helps. It certainly helps me focus. It certainly helps me do so many things, but it doesn't fix everything. And specifically when I have like a full shutdown mode where I just are task paralysis, as I think is the um, term for it, where you know you're supposed to be doing something, you want to be doing something, but you just can't. I like you just can't you just can't will yourself you can't motivate you can't and you like before I used to get so anxious about it and just really beat myself up and think oh, it's like oh I'm so lazy and I'm, I can't do it and 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 it's just like and it could be something as simple as an email but if you can't send that email then you can't do then you can't do your uh, social media for the day. And if you can't do your social media for the day, then you can't do your writing for the day. And, it, and then you just wind up just like kind of like, again, paralyzed. It's called task paralysis. And I used to really, really beat myself up for it. And because I did, it would stress me out even more. And that paralysis would carry over to the next day. And now when it hits me, I just kind of, I can, I know what it is and I can acknowledge what it is. And it's just like, okay, we're having a day like that. Maybe I don't get everything done or maybe I get some stuff done, but not everything done. And instead of just being like, oh, I'm so stupid and I'm so lazy. I'm just like, we're going to ride this out. It's like having a 24 hour bug. We're just going to ride it out. And tomorrow will be another day. And it's and because of that, I've become so much more productive. Because when it does hit, I allow myself to rest. So then the next day, I can go out and be a functioning human being. You know? Yeah, definitely. I think it's, um, it's an impactful thing, isn't it? And, and I think that... I've in a previous job worked in in school, sort of, sort of in the school system in in special needs, and there you'd often sort of get people, sort of professionals in that system, and go, well, why why do people want to get diagnosed? What you know, what, what, why do they want to get diagnosed? And I th- I think what people don't realise is that it it it's this you know the stuff you're saying it tells you so much about yourself, it gives you a sense of identity, and um and you know it helps you to stop feeling like you're failing at being a neurotypical person. Yeah. And I think with diagnosis, like you do get tools to learn how to specifically with ADHD. Um, and let me know if this happens with um, autism as well. But like with ADHD, you get tools to and people talk about ways to help you function a little better and like life hacks for when you're having days where you have task paralysis or executive dysfunction and for ADHD, there is medication. So you have these tools that will help you, but you also have the knowledge that like, now you know why it's happening. So when the tools don't work, it's okay. It's okay because tomorrow's another day and you're just having a, you're just having a bad brain day. Yeah. 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 No, definitely. Yeah. I've had lots of very, very similar similar things um like when you get diagnosed with autism i don't know it seems it seems like a different kettle of fish because like i mean we've talked about masking and stuff before but that doesn't sound like a healthy coping mechanism to like be in the world if you're masking 24 7 so like are there 
are there like tools or guidelines that once you got diagnosed, you learned that would help you in life? To be honest, the, the most helpful thing to me was that it was accessing sort of talking to other autistic people, going to a support group and going to, um, you know, watching. There's a YouTuber called Yo Samdi Sam um, and you know, reading books and uh, about autistic people. And that that was the thing that helped more than anything else is sort of giving me sort of access to those stories and mm-hmm. that understanding of, of, you know, being able to be myself and be able to think about what works for me Um you know, being okay with asking for things to be explained to me or to run through things that I might not um, ask other people. And seeing the ways in which I, you know, in some ways I'm, you know, I need a sort of extra help on adaptations with things. But in other ways, I'm easier to, I feel, I feel like I'm an easier person to work with than some other people, you know? And I, and I think that's, um, uh, you know, realising the, the two sides of it. Um, was very helpful and, and and gave me the confidence to to sort of ask for the things that I need. I think mm, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's just how gorgeous. did people respond to your diagnosis? What was the uh, what was the response when people when you came out as neurodivergent? Oh, I think it was mostly positive. Um, you know, my family was like, "I'm very glad that you're getting help." My mom kind of said she was like. My mom said she was, like, sorry that they didn't know sooner. Like, she's like, oh, I'm sorry we didn't figure this out before. Because I, I, I've said I, we went to a doctor when I was very young, and they didn't catch it. So it's like, but, you know, I don't hold any ill will. I'm not like, you you know, it's I'm not angry that they didn't know. Um, and then, for the most part, it's been really good. I will say... I did tell someone once, like, like shortly after I got diagnosed, I was supposed to be helping a friend with a project. And I kind of mentioned, I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't emailed you. Uh, But it turns out that like, um, I have ADHD. So like, now I know why sometimes I have trouble emailing people. It's because it's because of, uh, you know, uh, executive dysfunction and task paralysis and I forget easily and now I know and uh, he was just like oh you have ADHD and I was like yeah and I told him that uh, like I got diagnosed through a private clinic and he just kind of nods and he goes yeah well you can pay for anything these days and that really fucking hurt like that was just like uh, no but I'm trying to like explain how my brain works to you and it's like it, it, you know, and I don't like I don't think that's how it works because I know there's a lot of like, oh, if you go to a private doctor, they'll do anything you want. Uh, that one hasn't been my experience. And two, we talk about this in the podcast. I'm pretty sure this will make the edit. But when you go to a private clinician here in the UK, they get you to a they diagnose you. They get you to a certain point of your medication and then they throw you back to your general practitioner practitioner in the NHS. So they're not going to diagnose you for as a cash cow so they can keep making money on you because the eventual goal is to send you back into the public health care system. And and it's a detriment to the public health care system to 
weigh it down with people who don't have real diagnosis. Like, they're not going to do that, mm. you know? And potentially opening themselves up for medical negligence if they're it, um, recommending medication which people shouldn't have. Exactly. Exactly. I'm sorry that happened to you. Yeah, because that's a, a, such a, a, a sort of... Um, it's such a vulnerable thing to do, isn't it? To sort of when you put so first sort of opening opening that up to people. But um, so yeah, I'm I'm sorry that happened. Well, thank you. It's okay. It's okay. That person's now on a list. They're on a list. <laughs> when um, you're in charge. Yes. Uh, but what was you, uh, people's reaction when you found out that you were autistic? I yeah, you know, I was surprised. I always thought that I masked so incredibly well <laughs> that nobody would believe me. Um, and that's not been the case. Obviously, they're laughing when, oh yeah, that kind of kind of figures. Um, so uh, yeah, I think I think it's been been broadly positive. You know, I, I, I there's been very few. The thing is, we I know that to some extent, and I have this when I've, I've been working on sort of scripts and things and sitcoms. Hold on. No, <coughs> oh, I have to take a COVID test later today, and now I'm coughing. I think it's psychosomatic. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. Sorry about that. <laughs> I have this. I I I'm quite aware, and I have this when I'm writing scripts that, to some extent, I fulfil a lot of the stereotypes of an autistic person. You know, I'm a sort of nerdy, socially awkward white boy, um, and uh, I don't like trains. That's the only thing that uh, helps me break the stereotype. Um, but I, so I think. To some extent, people, you know, where I fit that mould, it is easier for me because when I tell people, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, a bit like, a bit like Sheldon. Yeah, yeah, I can I can see that. Um, so, yeah, pe- people have people have generally been sort, sort of responding well. I do think that it's, that it's similar to what we're talking about, people being productive. I think the only model of... Um, of neurodivergence we have is one where people are struggling that's like that, that's our image of it is people struggling so the one i do get sometimes is people going well you don't look autistic when you're on stage and i that annoys me because i feel like on stage is when i'm most autistic that's when mm-hmm. i'm being myself more i'm not masking at all i'm completely like you know that i feel very comfortable in myself when i'm doing comedy um and i feel like when people say you don't look autistic on stage. It's sort of reflective of how all people know of autistic people is when we're struggling and having a having a hard time. Yeah. Um, and uh, so yeah, I, th- I think that that that's a sort of um, a thing which which needs to change. Really, is you know thinking about what does it look like for neurodivergent people when we do well and when we do fit in and when we do um, succeed. Um, yeah. Well, should we uh, should we bring on the interview with Angela? Yes, yeah, I'm very excited to to listen to it again. All right, let's do it. Here is Angela Barnes. So, Angela Barnes, welcome to Neurodivergent Hello. Moments. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's nice. For those uh, who are unaware of Angela's talents, and I doubt that's anyone who's listening right now, uh, but Angela is a fabulous stand-up comedian, uh, just solo work in progress of her Edinburgh show, and a wonderful podcaster herself, and uh, recently diagnosed with ADHD. Congratulations. Yes, sir. Aren't we all? I mean, it's starting to feel that way. (laughs) 
in the world of comedy that we inhabit, I'm more intrigued by the people who are telling me they don't have neurodivergence than those that do. I'm like, wow, how do you do this job with a normal brain? <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> I think so. There's a few comics I've been thinking about where I would not name anyone, but where you go, you don't quite fit in with comedy. Like, and it's nothing's they're not necessarily bad, but just, you just sort of go, you're not one of that, us. And I've realised it's because then you're yeah. typical. <laughs> That's right. It's like you, you're, you're supposed to be, yeah, doing a job that, that we can't do, <laughs> which is most of them. Yeah. <laughs> I meant to give you a box of receipts and then you do my tax return. That's what's meant to happen. That's right. <laughs> That's right, exactly. A box of receipts. How organised are you, Joe? I'm using a pillowcase or Asda bag. <laughs> um, actually, oh and I didn't even realise this until we just started talking about it, you did a public post, Angela, that you were diagnosed with ADHD. And within minutes of me seeing that, I messaged you being like, how'd you do that? Where do you go get one of those? How do I get tested <laughs> for that? Do you know the amount of people, in fact, I just got another one today and I won't name them because obviously it's their stories, but the amount of people that have told me they've pursued their own diagnosis because of me speaking about it. It's really interesting because I think um, I was really not sure whether to, how soon to sort of talk about it publicly. Mm -hmm. uh, I was diagnosed in May 2021, so it's not even been a year yet. And I pretty much put it on social media instantly because my thinking was, you know, on Twitter, whatever, I haven't got loads of followers, but I've got 50 something thousand, which is a fair, you know, amount of people. And I just thought when, you know, I had to wait till I was 44 to get diagnosed. And maybe if I'd seen someone like me talking about it when I was a teenager, or crikey, even in my 20s or 30s would have been nice, then maybe that would have uh, spurred me on a bit sooner you know and you feel a bit i feel a bit sort of self-righteous going i thought by talking about it in public then other people won't have to go through but it is how the world works now you see something online and you go hang on a minute um you know so it was i wasn't doing it as a sort of declaration or even as a sort of public service it was just more like well if you know you wish that you lived in a world where people knew about this stuff and and just well then be part of that world that you want it to be and talk about it don't it's not a dirty secret it's not a um you know and if you treat it like it is or it's something that you have to be private about and that, well then you're just perpetuating this thing of of people not understanding themselves um so yeah i did pretty instantly start talking about it yeah and especially like people like around our ages too like and i've talked to joe about this on the podcast my boyfriend's the one who clocked it in me and I didn't mm. think I had it for the longest mm. time. And it was just like, because I have this idea that people who have ADHD are nine-year-old boys who can't sit still in class. Like, to me, that's like, I don't even think yeah. of adults having ADHD, let alone no. me. And yeah, uh, yeah. How, how did you come to realize that you might be neurodivergent? So, well, similarly, I mean, the first time it was ever mentioned to me, and I should give a bit of my background maybe as well in terms of sort of mental health. Like mm. I, I'd had quite a rocky time with mental health, particularly in my sort of late teens and throughout my 20s. And I had various different diagnoses along the way 
which didn't fit but you know you sort of well we'll come on to kind of gender issues <laughs> that's a whole other thing but um and and the one that kind of stuck in the end was you know having a, at one point being diagnosed with bipolar and being on mood stabilizers i've been on cotiapine i've been on all sorts of drugs um but the one that kind of stuck was just persistent depressive disorder which is a kind of way of going well you're long-term depressed we don't really know why take these drugs you know that's all that really means um you know and that's not to say there aren't people who have persistent depressive disorder i just had this awareness that there was something else going on and i had this i was also treated for sort of generalized anxiety disorder but i felt that those two things were more linked than they were being in a different way to how they were being treated and i didn't have the vocabulary to explain what was really going on and the, the first time it was ever mooted that adhd might be the thing was about five years ago and i was really um i was in a really busy period work-wise and things were starting to pick up for me work-wise that so, you know I, I was starting to do mock the week regularly i was starting to do lots of uh radio shows hosting um news jack on for extra you know all these great opportunities were coming along and rather than enjoying it, I was just so full of anxiety and I was really struggling to cope and I wasn't sleeping. And I spoke to my friend who's actually, she's a psychotherapist. And, um, and it was her who said to me, because I, I was having trouble just getting work done that I knew I had to do, you know. And it, she was the first person who said, I think you might have ADHD. And I, my reaction was exactly what you said. I was like, Are you, what? That's the things that little boys that throw chairs across classrooms have that's not what grown women have <laughs> do you know mm -hmm. what i mean and, and also the thing the real stumbling block for me with adhd i think there's real problems with the term adhd uh, and one of the biggest stumbling blocks is the h is the hyperactivity because i felt like i was the opposite of that i felt like i was almost catatonic sometimes when i was stressed you know and and that i wasn't hyperactive nobody knew me would describe me as hyperactive you know i wasn't always on the go i wasn't couldn't sit still but skip forward five years later when i did finally pursue a diagnosis for another reason which i'm sure we'll come on to but that's when it was sort of explained to me I, I i've got a brilliant psychiatrist and he kind of explained to me that that h in hyperactivity particularly in women or with uh, anyone really with inattentive type adhd which is the one that they're sort of learning more about now that h isn't necessarily a physical external manifestation it's it can be internal and that's when it just clicked i was like yes my brain doesn't stop um you know and i describe my brain as like being a laptop with all the tabs open all the time which is mm -hmm. also my actual laptop um <laughs> you know and that constant sort of brain activity that doesn't stop it doesn't seem to stop when i sleep i have very active sleep i sleepwalk i um you know I'm forever sort of throwing my covers off in my sleep so i suppose that is quite physical hyperactivity but well, only when i'm asleep and um i've been treated for all sorts of sleep disorders and all sorts and then um yeah, then the, when he explained this thing about hyperactivity in the brain, and I, I sort of hadn't realised, because you don't, do, no one has any way of knowing how anyone else's brain works. So you just assume we're all broadly similar in the way that our, we think uh, and process information. And um, yeah, and, I, and it was only when I realised that there's certain things that I do that apparently not everyone does do. And that's things like, I have constant counting in my head. So when I'm not talking, I'm counting, you know, when I'm out and about, I count my steps. Um, you know, not in a 
sort of Fitbit way, just in a as it's just something. So there's constant noise, or mm -hmm. you know, if if I'm not thinking consciously about something, my head's full of song lyrics, or it's got you know, it just goes to another tab and sees what's happening over there. There's never peace. <laughs> it's never mm -hmm. quiet. Um, and so it was sort of the realization that, oh, that's yes, that is hyperactive. That process in my brain that is constantly as I know now, constantly looking for the next dopamine hit. You know, I, I say my brain is like a, a sort of coked up screen, like young screenwriter at a Hollywood party looking for the next person to try and sell their script to all the time, you know, just constantly on the go looking for something that's going to give it what it wants. I find it so fascinating that like when we talk about getting diagnosed later in life, so many people... I mean, maybe it's because we're all in the same community and mm -hmm. Angela made the first post and we've all just been. <laughs> yeah, hang on a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. If she's got it, then I got it. But um, it's just like the more people talk about it, the more it's like, oh, I'm not alone in this. So like some things like or or you finally know it's rare. One of the two things like mm. you're like. Because I, I, it is a balancing, or it's not a balancing act, but it is a, it's interesting how the more I learn about ADHD, the more some things I find very comforting because it's like, oh, I'm not alone in this, like, these shutdown modes. Like, as you, like, this, this catatonic inability to work, like, mm -hmm. that's a symptom of something, and other people have that symptom. But at the same time, it's also, like, but not everyone has it. And yeah. and it's it's such an interesting, I don't know, balance. But it, well, and you learn about it because people people talk about it. Like because like you said, you don't know what's in other people's head. Like you you just assume you're like, well, everyone has everyone can work on Monday and Tuesday and then cries on Wednesday. Like that's yeah. just that other Craig David song. Yeah. I know. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But it's true. I I I do think, I mean, it can feel a bit at the moment and I understand this and, I, you know, people do make this comment and I can see how it can look like it a bit. But in the world we inhabit, by which I mean the world of comedy slash entertainment, whatever you want to call it, it feels a bit like there's this sort of tidal wave at the moment of people getting diagnosed with ADHD. And from the outside, I can see how you go, oh, come on, not everyone's got ADHD. Or, or even from inside that world, rather, because in my sphere of you know my circle of friends if you like and my people I interact with most are in that world and so you go your instinct is to go well this is just getting silly now not everyone can have it rather than go oh actually there's something these people all have in common isn't there that is that they are in this world because most of the people not all there's been one or two that aren't but most of the people that have approached me since my diagnosis and talking about it have been comedians or actors or entertainers. Mm -hmm. They haven't been people in other lines of work, particularly maybe I could think of maybe one that is, um, but generally. And so rather than go, you know, well, your instinct is to go, Oh God, everyone's saying they've got it. It's, it, it can't be, that can't be right. You go, Oh, well, what have all of us that said we've got it in common? Well, it's that, this is the job that we're able to do. And I find that really fascinating because I didn't start doing stand-up till I was in my 30s. I was 33 when I did my first stand-up gig. And I think that if I hadn't sort of stumbled across comedy in the way they are, now this is going to sound dramatic, 
But with my history as it was, I am not convinced I'd still be here because I was not coping. I was not well and I was not happy. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, the way I put it is that um, until my diagnosis last year, the only word I had for that was failure, right? Because at school, I was a very high achiever. I was top of the class. I was predicted to do well. I was moved up a year. I, you know, all these things. And despite some sort of slight difficulties with home life and things that made it a bit difficult, I still always managed to achieve well at school. And it wasn't until I left school that it just fell apart because I didn't have that, you know, school is such a cradling structure. around. And I know it doesn't work for everyone. And I know particularly <laughs> people with neurodiversity, school can be a, an issue, that cradling structure. But for me, it provided that um, what I needed to make sure I got things done, you know. Whereas then I went off to university and suddenly there's no one going, have you done your homework? There's no one going, this is what's going to happen if you haven't done your homework. You're going to get detention or whatever. There's no, there's no one to frighten me into getting shit done because I, I didn't like being told off. I, I still don't. I'm a praise addict. You know, I don't like being told off. I don't like letting people down. I don't like people not liking me. Even if I even find myself, you know, some crazy right winger on Twitter is having a go at me. I'm like, why don't they like me? You know, <laughs> deep down, that's the, rather than go, you don't want them to like you, Angela. It's fine. Yeah. Um, you know, you, it's just this visceral need to be liked, which people could smell off you for a start. Like it's not a pleasant trait. And, um, and I think that, that, yeah, the only words I had for not being able to do what all my peers were able to do, not being able to meet all those arbitrary life goals, not being able to keep a job was failure. And like, I, I've never been sacked from a job in my life. But what I would do was change jobs every six months because I couldn't, couldn't physically go back to that place again mm-hmm. and do that same thing again you know, with the same people again. And, and what that meant was throughout my 20s, I never moved up in a job you know I never as my friends were starting to get better jobs and get promoted and do well in whatever they were doing I was just moving sideways because I was moving to different jobs all the time just to get the dopamine to get the you know I thrived on change is how I used to put it but it it meant I wasn't settling and I wasn't you know I'd move house twice a year and and all these things that were just chaotic it just led to a chaotic life and so I wasn't settling I wasn't meeting the right people I wasn't you know and and as my friends started to have get married or settle or whatever I just thought well I'm for whatever reason I'm just not able to do those things I must be a failure I must just be really rubbish at life because everyone else seems to be managing just fine and then I found comedy and suddenly you're in a world where no two days are the same you're not with the same people every day so you're getting that change that you thrive on on a daily basis you know Mm -hmm. which I now know is a, a dopamine hit and you're getting that different stimulation from different people rather than the same person every day. And you're getting something that other jobs couldn't give me. And, um, you know, I haven't got a boss. I don't buy my lunch in the same Pret-a-Manger every day. I don't get the same bus every day. You know, mm. all those things that were driving me mad without realising that that's what it was suddenly fell away. And lo and behold, there's a job I can do and still love after 12, 13 years. Um and, and I, so I think it's no coincidence that, yes, it feels like, oh, God, everyone's got ADHD. You're like, well, yeah, probably all comedians have because <laughs> it's a job that suits us, whereas it's a job that doesn't fundamentally doesn't suit a neurotypical person who doesn't thrive on constant change, who thrives on a bit of consistency and a bit of, you know, knowing what's going to happen next and, and not um, 
not being that unpredictable. So, yeah, I don't think it is a, a coincidence at all. And I'm more surprised at people that are able to do this job without having this weird dopamine-driven force behind them to make them do it. You know, I'm like, well, why are you doing it? <laughs> like, I'm doing it because I'm looking for a hit. What What are you here for? Yeah. <laughs> You're not, you know, because this is crazy. <laughs> it's life. Um, I, I find it so interesting because you're, you're someone who is so sort of prolific in the stuff you do and you do so many different things. And I think that you would be, I don't know how you feel about this, but I think you would be described as a hardworking comedian. <laughs> um, but is that, does it feel that way or how? I, it's so funny, that whole hardworking comedian thing. So I think in some ways I am. I think in the way that I am is, and I know there was some poll in some magazine a few, a couple of years ago that sort of they took the amount of miles comedians were travelling to their gigs and stuff. They looked at their gigs online or whatever. And I was like the third most hardworking comedian in Britain or something stupid like that. <laughs> all, all that actually was, was I was gigging too much. I was gigging too much at that point. I was saying yes to gigs I shouldn't have been saying yes to at that point and I was reaching burnout because I was just... So, yes, I'm hardworking in that I, you know, will cram a lot in and I'll say yes to a lot of things and I'm still really bad for saying yes. To, I'm, I'm making it sound like I, I wish I'd said no to this. <laughs> you end up that's on not, podcasts that you don't want to be on. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. But you, you know how hard it is in this job sometimes to go. Actually, I don't want to do that. Or you, or, or we have this weird relationship with the future. I think stand-up comedians in that somebody <laughs> will email me today and I'll go, yeah, I'll want to do that in May. And then May comes, you're like, what on earth made me think I was going to want to do that? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, the, the past me has no idea what today me wants, and usually what today me actually wants is to be in my pajamas at home. Um, but. In terms of actually, I mean, it's funny you use the word prolific because I see myself as not prolific enough. Um, in terms of no one else sees, I'm gonna just interrupt you. (laughs) No one else sees you like that, Angela Barnes. Like, and I mean, in a podcast about neurodivergency and uplifting neurodivergent people, uh, like you again, like one reason why I emailed you was like. Well, if Angela fucking has it, like you're the one that no one thought had it. And that's why everyone's emailing you. But here's the thing with that. I think that it's really interesting about it. And again, it is about manifestation, right? Because there's some people you go, well, they've clearly got ADHD. Yeah. Because of that external manifestation of it. And I, and I think they've probably more likely to have the, um, you know, hyperactive form of ADHD if people are noticing it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that's the sort of interesting thing is, I mean, this is where, you know, from the outside, we all present ourselves in a certain way. And obviously social media is a fake construct of how our lives really are a lot of the time. Um, and and this is a, a competitive industry we're in to a certain extent, although I hate that it is. And I hate that there's that, you know, which is why I can't look at certain industry websites or anything like that, because you know that then I start having panic attacks well why are they doing that and I'm not or how come they've got that and I I haven't not not in a I think I deserve it but in a you're obviously not working hard enough Angela you're obviously not you know doing the right doing it right um it's the same reason why God love the comedians comedian podcast but I, I had to stop listening to that very early on because loads of comedians discussing the way they work was me just going well I need to be more like them and then I listen to the next episode well I need to be more like them it's like you can't be like all of them Angela you can only be like you that's yeah. <laughs> that's all that's within your power. So, you know, you drive yourself mad if you try to 
do what everyone's doing and be like everyone is. So I try now not to look at what everyone else is doing because I know that that horrible little bitch that lives in my head will go, see, you're not good enough. You didn't get asked to do that, did you? You didn't get invited to do that, did you? You know, rather than look at all the things that you are doing and you are invited to do. And um, I think one of the the sort of things that I always find fascinating when people like use the word prolific or is that I feel like I don't turn over material quickly enough. Right? That's the thing I have a real problem with. And my, one of she my writes biggest- writes a show a year. I, I don't know. I really, oh, really. I mean, my last Edinburgh show was in 2018. Oh, God. So was mine. Something that's happened. That's last Edinburgh's though. last show. Yeah. <laughs> that was, okay. That's slightly different. But also, I find it very difficult to turn over a show in a year, mm. partly because I do very, I do quite dense Edinburgh shows. You know, mine is quite dense jokes. So I think it takes a, long, a bit longer to write the structure of a show if you're not a storyteller, you know, if you're more sort of, but that's a whole, that's for another podcast. That's for comedians, comedian. But um, I think what I struggle with and, and the thing that actually made me go and seek out my diagnosis is executive dysfunction, which until a year ago, I did not have a word for, I did not have a phrase for and did not know that was a thing. And that is the thing that has allowed me to forgive myself so much from my past because what I could never understand was that there would be a task say that I had to do and I knew I had to do it and I knew that by doing this task I would reap the benefit of it be that you know money be that a promotion be that whatever the benefit is I know that by doing the task I reap the benefit I want to do the task I have the ability to do the task and I have the time to do the task so why the fuck was I not doing the task? I couldn't work it out. And and I knew I wasn't just lazy. I know the optics from the outside are, if you ask someone to do something and they don't do it and they've got no excuse for not doing it, laziness is all you've got, right? And mm-hmm. I get that because I thought that about people myself. I knew deep in my core that it wasn't laziness because a, a lazy person doesn't care. Right now, I've already said I don't like letting people down. I don't like people not liking me. I like praise. So it's not laziness. And the fact I I wasn't spending the time that I wasn't doing the task, you know, just kicking back, watching telly, doing nothing. I was spending it stressing about not doing the task, which sounds mad, right? It's like if if you're it's, and people say oh, if you're getting such a state about not doing it just do it and then it's done isn't it how many times have i heard that in my life just do it and then it's, it's done it's not how it works though that is just and I, I but you can't explain it to somebody who doesn't experience it just talking about executive dysfunction my whole life being so confused by i have always felt like people like have tossed me aside because i'm i'm a i, I i'm very um what's the word for it uh I'm very charismatic, like, and I and I'm and I'm very good on my feet, but mm-hmm. I like I have trouble turning in work as you would. So so I feel like career wise, I've gotten passed over things because people think I'm lazy, and I've I've worked with like directors and agents and people who are just like, well, if you want it, you'll do it, or you're just being lazy. And I'm like, I I've never wanted anything more. Mm-hmm. And now, in my experience, now that I've been diagnosed with ADHD and now 
I am also on medication, but again, for those listening at home, medication doesn't mean executive function just goes away and you never deal with it again. But now that I know that that's what's happening, I can, I can either find a way around it Mm -hmm. or I can just let, write it out. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Like yesterday was a weird day. Like we, we obviously recorded a podcast and I saw your show, but that whole day I was just like, this is a weird day. I'm just going to let it be a weird day. And it's, and it's so much easier than like hating yourself and then having the knock on effect of hating yourself. Absolutely. I think, I think taking away. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Now oh, no, we no, are no, all on. so excited. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think it's so right that taking away that shame. I I've been talking about this a lot of Abigail. I went to a, a wedding on Sunday. I hope the people whose wedding it was don't listen to this. <laughs> I, I did not enjoy. I don't. I don't like weddings. I don't. You know, I, I, they're too noisy and not horrible. Um, mm. But this was the first wedding that I'd been to where I didn't feel ashamed for not enjoying the wedding. You know, and, and the other weddings I've been to, it's like everything's noisy and overwhelming and horrible, and I'm really unhappy here. And I can't either. I'd sort of like f- believe that I didn't like the people because mm-hmm. I was like, well, these people have ups- I'm upset. It must be these people's fault. Or I felt very ashamed that I couldn't. What's wrong with me? I couldn't enjoy it. As the first, and the it took so much pressure off just not the exact same experience but not being ashamed of how you're responding to that experience is mm. completely different because you've got thing. a reason for it that isn't i'm just an arsehole yeah. <laughs> or mm. you know or i'm just lazy or i'm just some negative word it's that these situations are situations that i find difficult because my brain isn't set up to deal with them and most people it is you know we're we're I, I, I sort of, there's an analogy with being left-handed i think for people with neurodivergence in that 70% of the world is right-handed. Now, that doesn't mean that the the 30% of the world that is left-handed don't exist. They exist and we know they're out there, but the world isn't set up for them because the world has to be set up for the majority, right? Society has to be structured in a way, or, or has to, it's a strong word, but is structured in a way for the majority because that's just the easiest way to organise a society. But that doesn't mean that the thir- other people don't exist. They're still there being left-handed but they're there finding it difficult to use scissors and they're there finding it difficult to do things that we take for granted and that's what being neurodivergent is it's there's a percentage of us whatever that might be there's a lot you know estimates vary wildly from one percent to you know 40 percent whatever uh, joe, just... sorry joe wells what's the percentage go <laughs> well neurodivergent is one in seven isn't it but that that's that's right, yeah. the stats yeah. i've got yeah <laughs> so, well, so you know there's a seventh of us then that are, are trying to be left-handed in a right-handed world and the world isn't going to meet us because that's one thing I will say about diagnosis it you know I was euphoric with my diagnosis thought my life is going to change overnight but what I very quickly realized is that the world doesn't change to accommodate me because I'm now because I know I've got ADHD you know people aren't going to stop making the same demands on me people aren't going to stop giving me deadlines people aren't going to stop what has changed is how I deal with that and what has changed is that I can now go actually I'm not going to do that thing because I don't think I can and that's all right mm-hmm. rather than feel like a failure because I can't do it um and, and you know so it, it's not this suddenly you can say to people I've got ADHD so stick it and you know it's all going to be fine it it just means that 
that having a reason, you know, it's not going to, you can't start enjoying weddings now just because you know, you've got autism. Do you know what I mean? You can't, that's not, but you, like you say, it's taken away that shame of being different and taken away that shame of feeling like a failure or feeling like you must be not a nice person or not a good person or not a, so much value in our society is on how much we produce and how much work we do. And for some of us, it's more uh, quality over quantity. You know, I can produce a really good bit of work once every few years, maybe, or, you know, maybe a bit more than that. But you know what I mean? Rather than, I can't churn it out every day and I get tired and I get overwhelmed. And that's another thing as well. We fetishize, I think, uh, in our society, people being tired because they've, burnt out because they've done too much and then we make people feel guilty if they're tired and they haven't done as much how many times you've heard it oh i'm really tired you're tired well i've done this 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 and this how come you're tired and you're like i'm tired because my fucking brain never stops but you mm. don't see that right and i know that you well done for you you got up at five o'clock this morning with your baby and then you did a four days work and then you do the. so you're allowed to be tired great but I'm not allowed to be tired because I'm just overwhelmed by being alive sometimes. I'm sorry that you don't like that and you find that, you know, difficult to understand. But it's the truth. And there's some days I just can't do it. Mm -hmm. And I can't fake it either. There's this real, we fetishise people being up early and being tired because of the amount they've produced. Mm -hmm. And it's weird. That rise and grind. <clears throat> Excuse me. That rise and grind mentality. Yeah. That is just like hammered into us. It's capitalism, man. It's capitalism. It sure just, is. It like... sure is. And, and you know, the world doesn't stop being, our society doesn't stop being a capitalist one just because we've got diagnosed. That's what is the hardest thing, I think, to get you, you sort of have this initial euphoria of going, I've got all the answers now. I know who I am and I understand myself. And I'm going to read everything about myself. And then you go, oh, the world's still being an arse, though. <laughs> you know. Now I've got to overthrow capitalism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Damn it. That's next on my list, but I'm just too damn tired. <laughs> uh, well, I actually uh, have a question for you, like regarding what we do for a living. And like, you know, you do a lot of work with uh, the, the Beebs. And mm. given the fact that one of it seems like what uh, the Beebs is the BBC for those <laughs> literally for my mother, who's like, what is and, the and also that. That's also not what any of us call it. It's just what Abigailiah calls it. Oh, really? Is that just me? Did I make that up? I thought I was being cool. This is like when I say mate and people are like, it doesn't make sense in your accent. Uh, but um, no, but like they've, it, it seems like they're really making an effort to uh, have more diversity and um, be more inclusive in their programming. So if that's the case do they offer you any i don't know how to like assistance or help or like anything like that when it comes to like being on mark the week are they ever like oh well we'll give you the packet three days early or whatever <laughs> it is i'll tell oh, you what the funny. news is in advance yeah, Literally, exactly. as I said I mean, that out loud, I was like, I don't think they can even do that. Yeah, I mean, part of that obviously is if you're working on topical shows, there's no, there's no yeah. sort of way around that. Really, there's not really an adaptation. You, can, I can't be like, well, can you give me that 
I say a week in advance so I've got more time to work on it and also the nature of executive dysfunction I'd probably still only do it the night before anyway mm -hmm. so that's why I think in some ways topical although I find it stressful I think topical comedy suits me doing those shows things like news quiz or um mot the week or whatever because I literally can't do it a week in advance so I'm not beating myself up for not having done it a week in mm -hmm. advance that makes sense I have to do it the night before because that's when it's fresh and and when the news is you know you have to do it the day so leaving it to the last minute is a, a virtue in those shows yeah. because you've got no choice you know so I don't have that guilt that I have if I'm doing a TV show that isn't topical and I've had the stuff to prepare sitting on my desk staring at me for two weeks, but I've still done it the night before, you know. Um, I don't have that added guilt of not having got it done early. So I think that's possibly why those shows work for me. Mm. But it's, I think it's very early days in any sort of organisation. And also... I do shows with the BBC. It's sort of complicated because I think people think, oh, I've seen you on BBC too, therefore you work for the BBC. And it's like, I don't work for the BBC, I'm a contractor. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a freelancer that they contract in. So they've got no obligation to me in terms of, you know, I don't sit in an office at the BBC to write, I sit in my house to write. Mm -hmm. So I do have freedom to set up my environment as I want to, you know, and things like that. Um, and they are adaptive. I remember when I was doing Newsjack, it had always been the case that the um, the host would come into the office the day before, write their stuff, you know, and then come in the next day and record it. And I sort of, after a series, I think, and I was like, I struggled because I like to sit, I know where I, I in my day, you can see on the thing behind me, I've got a big wall behind me that's covered in blackboard paint. I'm very, very, so when I'm writing, that's chalk and diagrams and spider diagrams and things like that. I find it very difficult to sit in a room at a desk and just write jokes like a, a machine. You know, that's not how I work. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there was this expectation that that's what I would do. I'd go into the office with my laptop, sit in a corner quietly, write all the jokes. And I had to go, well, I'm going to write much better jokes if I can do it in my room at home with my blackboard and where I'm left alone and where I can listen to loud MP3s of... Uh, vacuum cleaners which is what i listen to to fill the noise hole you know and um wait back up literal <laughs> vacuum cleaners I, yeah vacuum cle white noise white noise is i have to if i'm writing if i've got to concentrate on anything if i'm reading i listen to white noise so either um like a vacuum cleaner or something that that's like a, hell. A white noise on a loop or like heavy rain but it has to be like i can't do it with sort of tweety birds or anything like mm -hmm. that because there's too many changes in it which then distract me they i get distracted by the change in pitch or by the change in it has to just be like noise and then i can concentrate I imagine if you had that album lou reed made when he was trying to get out of a record contract <laughs> you heard that? it's called metal machine music and it's <laughs> it's two hours um of just sort of yeah just that noise you just made perfect. and it's a double album as well which I <laughs> perfect i have a question about um i guess for, for both of you about because with autistic people i think there's a general agreement that the diagnosis process is quite flawed and based on sort of stereotypes is that the same for adhd is there anything you change about the diagnosis process well for me i think the diagnostic process has changed very recently, which is why I was able to be diagnosed at all. So I do think that there's, um, that's a 
good thing um and uh, you know presumably that has also is also reflected on how children are diagnosed now and and the assessment and stuff i think one of the biggest flaws we were talking about this yesterday Abigail, in in the assessment process is sending you a shed loads of forms to fill in yeah. well <laughs> You know, if you if executive dysfunction is one of your key uh, signs that someone has ADHD, unless that's actually part of the assessment, whether you're trying to work out if they've got executive dysfunction by whether or not they send the forms back or not, then that is fundamentally flawed, isn't it? Because that person then might not ever send those flaws back and never get their diagnosis. Uh, send send those flaws back, send those forms back, and never get their diagnosis. You know, so it's little things like I know that's I think. I didn't have that with the assessment I did was much more um, in person and less form filling. There's a bit of form filling in, but, you know, I've seen people go through the NHS process. It's just forms after forms after forms. And then can you do this one, then do that one? And they're like, and of course, it's not getting done. So that is a fundamental <laughs> flaw in assessing somebody for ADHD, I think. But in terms of the I know with autism, there's a lot of discussion about um you know, it's so great that now autistic people are sort of seizing their narrative and, you know, saying we want to be called autistic. We're, we're, that is fundamentally part of who we are. Can we stop medicalizing it and stop framing it like it's, a, you know, the, the word disorder, I think, is the problem in ADHD. Um, because disorder will all, you know, all that has such negative and medical connotations that it's something that needs to be fixed. And while with ADHD, see, again, we've talked a bit about ADHD meds. It's probably worth saying ADHD meds don't fix ADHD. They don't stop you having ADHD. What they can do is provide you with help to concentrate when you need it. Um, you know, so you can get things done that you might otherwise not have been able to get done. But they don't work in the way that antidepressants work, that, you know, it's not a long-term solution. It's not a, a solution, really. It's just an aid um in that you know using a walking stick isn't going to stop you having a broken leg um so it, it yeah so i think i suppose it can be seen that adhd is medicalized because it can be treated but it can't really you can just use assistance you can use these aids but i found the whole process taking much longer than it needed to because of me because i would be like oh i really need to and what i was doing as well was i i you know right on the titration process where we'd be sort of try these meds for two weeks if you need to up it fine but because i i was sort of busy or i couldn't be bothered or i was dysfunctional or whatever i'd be like i'll just stay on that dose again for another two weeks let me just really make sure just because i i couldn't face the change at that point or mm -hmm. whatever you know so it, the, the process it, it's you know a very um any sort of process of the admin of any kind of diagnosis and getting treatment through be it private or nhs I think it's very difficult for somebody who isn't neurotypical to navigate yeah. because a lot of it involves waiting, filling in forms, waiting again, and they're all things we're not good at. I think I said before, I, my wife's been diagnosed with ADHD and, and she had the same thing with the, um, the forms that took ages and she was really worrying about them but wasn't able to do them. And But one day I was like, right, tonight we'll do our sit down with you. We would, I'll, I'll hold it and go through it on the laptop. And I'll do it and I'll ask you the question, I'll write it all. So, and um, fine, good. And then I asked the question, like, do you, so other times where you got easily distracted and um, she turns to me from her phone and goes, bees are fascinating. 
she's been googling beef <laughs> acts like, you don't need to do this assessment darling i think we've got this covered in here <laughs> so wonderful but, yeah, but it's true it's true i i you know there's so many things that when you look back and go, oh my God, it was so obvious. I yeah. And I really worried, I really worried about telling my mum for, for a couple of reasons. One is I worried that she would be like a lot of people that sort of, oh, you haven't got it. Everyone thinks they've got ADHD these days. It's just fashionable, you know, that camp. Or I was worried that she would, my mum's from a generation where, you know, anything that's wrong with their kids is their fault. So I was worried that she would be, you know, oh my God, I've, fa- I've failed you somehow, you know, and this is my fault. And it would all become about that. Mm-hmm. So I was nervous to tell her. And, uh, and then when I, I did tell her, she went, oh yeah, that makes sense. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> that was the last thing I expected you to say. I thought you were going to fight against this because most people are quite surprised with my diagnosis. You don't seem to be. And she told me, she said, yeah, I remember when you were at play school and, uh, we had, I used to have to come with you and stay with you all day for a bit because uh, they didn't have enough staff to keep an eye on you because you kept wandering from one activity to the next. You wouldn't sit in one place and do one thing. You'd just finish it and then move. I was like, oh, well, you never thought to mention that to me. Because <laughs> 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 that seems pretty much like ADHD to me. <laughs> and all these people going, oh, yeah, actually, when I think about it, yeah, you yeah, you do this or you do that. You're like, oh, mm. right, yeah. Yeah, it was all there. You know, in retrospect, it's all very clear. <laughs> I think all of these we're going to be saying similar, but but particularly today, there's just so much that's like relatable. Like even across diagnosis, there's so much about being neurodivergent, which I think there's common ground that we can relate to. Absolutely, absolutely. We're the Square Peg Club. Love uh, it. Absolutely. <laughs> that's the name of that's the name of this episode, Square Peg Club. What do you got coming out? Uh, how do people oh. find you? It, do you have anything special or just the socials? Yeah, just the socials. So really, uh, Angela Barnes on Twitter, Angela underscore Barnesy on uh, Instagram, because Angela Barnes was already gone. Um, I have a podcast. Uh, it's a history podcast, which I do with John O'Farrell. It's called We Are History. Um, you can find us on Twitter at We Are History Pod. It's a, don't be put off by the fact it's a history podcast. It's two comedy writers being very silly about history. And it's quite, you might learn something by accident, but it's fun as well. And um, I will be doing the Edinburgh Fringe um this summer and then going on tour in the autumn so if you go to my website which is angelabarnescomedy.co.uk there's a mailing list you can sign up to i only uh send stuff out if i'm if i've got tickets going on sale i don't spam people with it because i know people get frustrated but I'll, if you want to find out when i'm on tour that's the best way to do it and uh yeah i think that's it awesome thank you for coming on the show thank you for having me um it's really nice to see you guys Good to see you too. Hey, Abigail, do you know about Podspike? Uh, yes, I do, in fact, because they are our sponsor for this episode. Uh, wonderful sponsors. So I'm sure there are people who are budding podcasters or who have a special interest they want to make a podcast about. Here's a question. If you weren't, if this all falls apart, what would you, what are your other podcast ideas? Well, I am an avid lover of peanut butter. So I would like to do a podcast someday where I try all the brands of peanut butter and discuss them like fine wines. (laughs) The peanut butter podcast. The peanut butter podcast.
That's actually really good. I know that that was a that was you saying that slightly as a silly joke, but I would listen listen to that. You could have guests on yeah. bringing their own favorite peanut butter. Uh, literally, as I said it, I was like, now I want to make that podcast. <laughs> what about you? If if uh, if you were to make another uh, podcast in your podcast roster, what would it be, Joe Wells? Mine would be about how to save money on train journeys in the UK. I'm becoming an expert in that. And I would teach the listeners about how to split train fares. It might be a little bit boring, but I'd make it fun. It'd be one of those things where people go, it sounds boring, the splitting your ticket podcast, but he makes it really entertaining. Hey, that's a podcast I'd listen to because that's a podcast I need. But you know what? Sometimes it's hard to break through as a podcast. And that is where Podspike comes in. Yeah, so paying for PR for for a podcast can cost thousands of pounds. But what Podspike have done is they've made it really manageable so you can have access to bite-sized chunks of podcast promotion at an affordable monthly price. They've got us into Podbible, the Podbible magazine. Uh, we're, we're featured on, on their web, or we're due to be featured on their website. So if you're listening to this because you saw us on Podbible, that's how we did it. Podspike helped us out. Yeah, they're really great. Um, they've been fabulous for us to work with with and the most important thing you have to know about them is there's no fake followers no complicated strategies no minimum commitments um it is there for you to use when you need it how you need it and it's a fabulous uh service they provide yeah you could you could just try it out for one month see how it goes and um and go from there yeah, so give it a try. You can check them out at their website, podspike.com, to see all of the publicity and help that they offer new and budding podcasts. Podspike, podcast marketing made easy. Yeah, so that was our interview with Angela Barnes. She was brilliant, wasn't she? That was so good. I love that woman. She's absolutely <laughs> fabulous. I've had to do the uh, the editing on it, and I, I don't I don't know yet what I've taken out because it, it was it was all so good. But I think it's pretty much uh, it's probably going to be a long episode if you're listening to this. <laughs> You've probably been with us for two hours. We would say sorry, but we're not sorry. No, it was all, all gold. But that being said, this episode's just going to be a bit longer because we. Have your neurodivergent moments that you, our amazing audience members, have written in to us. Thank you. They were really good. We've got some really exciting ones. Um, so for those of you who are new to the podcast, uh, we ask uh, our listeners to email us their neurodivergent moments, little moments in life where you as a neurodivergent person experience something and you go, oh, my brain works differently. And if you yourself want to to send in a neurodivergent moment, you can always email us at neurodivergentmomentspod at gmail.com. And yeah, shall we read some off? Yes, I have uh, one from, they haven't said whether they wanted to be anonymous, so we will call them D. Uh, so this is from D, and uh, she says, Hi, this is a slightly meta-endy moment. I like that we're starting with one that is uh, is meta. Um, I'm not sure, really sure if it counts as one, but I guess we'll find out. We will find out. Let's find out and we will judge at the end if this is a neurodivergent moment. Um, but I didn't receive my diagnosis of autism and ADHD until two years ago when I was 26. 
When I was 20, pre-diagnosis slash any idea of my neurodivergencies, I got a job as a TA in a special needs school and was required to have an induction on understanding autism. For this, myself and other new colleagues were shown a video from the National Autistic Society of an autistic boy walking through a shopping centre from his point of view, almost like a simulation of what it's like to have a sensory overload. I remember sitting through this induction and thinking, wow, I struggle with this stuff. It must be really hard for autistic people. <laughs> I think there's so many times as a neurodivergent person who gets diagnosed late in life that you're like, oh, is that <laughs> what that is? It's that everyone does that thing, isn't it? It's, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, oh, this must be, yeah, every, everyone feels complete sensory overload in shopping centres. Oh, I see, right. Yes, yes. I would classify that definitely as a neurodivergent moment, definitely 100%. I love it. I love it. Me too. All right, I have one from Trish. Hello, Trish. Um, she reads... Uh, my name's Trish. I'm a 47-year-old Australian woman who's been re recently diagnosed autistic. Yay! Go, Trish. You're doing the Lord's work. So, fun fact. A few years ago, I was walking with friends along the foreshores near where I live. The place is a hive of activity. People on bicycles, skates, skateboards, scooters, people walking dogs, going fishing, etc. I'm a cat lover, and my hubby and I have three fur babies, but no dogs. So while out and about, if I see a dog that looks friendly enough, I'll go pat it. Back to the walk with a friend, I patted quite a few dogs during that walk. I got my fill of canine calm minus the poop scooping. After one such encounter, my friend turned to me and said, you know, you should probably say hello to the human as well, not just the dogs. <laughs> Wonderful. I applaud you, Trish. A prime <laughs> neurodivergent moment. I like the. I don't know whether it was your reading, but I, I think I think this is how it was said. Which I, I patted quite a few dogs on that <laughs> walk. There's an element of sort of like not showing off, but just like it was a good walk. Patted a few dogs, you know. You know, I went out. I did my thing. It was good. <laughs> it was good. Oh, I love it. God bless. I'm now. I'm just picturing Trish like stopping in front of every dog, and like as she pets them the owner beaming with pride being like at any moment this woman's gonna look up and say good job what's her name what a cute dog and trish is just like all about the dog <laughs> and that person like it's almost like you've bought a nice dress and no one will comment like that <laughs> like they want congratulations for their dog and they're just like and trish is like there is no human here there's just the pup just the pup <laughs> It's like you've got a dress, but they're just congratulating the dress, not you as a person. Yeah, that's it. That's a great dress. Thank you. I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> I was talking to the dress. <laughs> well, like I said at the beginning of this, if anyone wants to send us in uh, neurodivergent moments, please do at our uh, Gmail account. And what is the Gmail account again, Joe? It is neurodivergentmomentspod at gmail.com neurodivergentmomentspod at gmail.com yeah and um, it is worth noting to let us know if you would like to be left anonymous or not in the email if you've emailed us already we will get to yours probably in a later episode 
What other things do we need to tell people? We've got, we've got Patreon? Uh, yes, we now have a Patreon. And uh, we already have so many subscribers. So thank you to all the subscribers in our Patreon. <laughs> it really does mean a lot. It really does mean a lot. Um, to that that person, that our one subscriber is, they are part of an elite group. They are the third, they're our um, peak best to our Beatles. Exactly. They they will be the one whom we never forget. Uh, <laughs> we'll always know their name. That being said, I don't have access to the Patreon, so I have no clue what their name is. But I'll learn it, and I'll never forget <laughs> it. Um, if people want to become a Patreon, Joe, what's on the Patreon? Uh, so we're putting up extra episodes. So there's already an extra, I think it's about 15 minutes from the, our first episode, just us. And then next Friday, if you're listening to this today, it came out. There will be an extra chunk from the Angela Barnes recording, um, which which there, there was there was so much gold in that. I think that um, uh, I don't know what's going to be. It's, you're going to have to listen to it all because it's um, it's all good. The link for the Patreon will be in the show description. Yeah, and um, thank you everyone who sent us neurodivergent moments. Thank you, Angela, for being on the podcast. And if you haven't subscribed or rated the podcast yet, uh, please do that. We're starting out, so that sort of oh yes, clicky, dude, it al- helps a lot. Yeah, that algorithmy stuff really makes a difference. So we we were. I don't know if you saw this. We were the number four comedy podcast in Estonia. We've got <gasps> a big Estonian fan base. So if you're listening to this in Estonia, thank you. I didn't know this. Thank you. I have always wanted to tour Estonia. Um, Guys, thank you so much. And we will see you in two weeks. The next episode comes out. See you then. Bye.